0: Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn, taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S. and beyond. You can find all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. you find some links there, you'll find a link to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You'll also find a link there to send me a message. Send me a message, let me know what you think of the coverage, or let me know what you would like to hear covered in the future. In this episode, we'll take a look at some uh, environmental health impacts, and we'll uh, look at towards the end at Medicare for All. First up is a piece published at ecocenter.org. This piece is called What's Cooking, PFAS, and Other Chemical Hazards in Nonstick Cooking and Baking Pans. And this is a fairly extensive study, so I'll be just reading some excerpts from it. You can download the entire PDF version of this study from ecocenter.org slash healthy-stuff. What's worse than how the sausage gets made? How the pan gets made. New testing from the Ecology Center found that despite growing concern about the toxicity of, quote, forever chemicals known as PFAS, most nonstick cooking pans and some baking pans are coated with a polymer form of PFAS called PTFE, polytetrafluoroethylene. PTFE Best known by the brand name Teflon, is typically made using several hazardous PFAS, which are per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances that have polluted drinking water across the globe. We tested 14 nonstick cooking pans and 10 nonstick baking pans, representing a range of brands and prices, to identify their coatings. We found the following. of the cooking pans were PTFE coated. 20% of the baking pans were PTFE coated. In some cases, product claims on the packaging could lead buyers to purchase PTFE coated pans when they think they're buying an alternative. Some of the alternatives may also be hazardous. Surprisingly, we found undisclosed BPA-based coatings on two of the baking pans and one of the cooking pans. One of the common uses of PFAS is to make fluoropolymers, especially PTFE, and one of the biggest markets for PTFE is coatings on cookware. We tested only the type of coating present on each pan. We did not test for PFOA, Gen GenX, or other PFAS chemicals used in manufacturing, potentially remaining in finished products. For the list of pans and test results, see Table 2 at the end of the report. Forever fluorinated, the harm we don't see. We undertook this study as part of our broader mission to phase out non-essential uses of PFAS in order to protect drinking water around the globe. PFAS have caused and continue to cause harmful pollution that is extremely difficult to clean up. A growing body of evidence indicates some commonly used PFAS contribute to liver disease, cholesterol buildup, impaired response to vaccines, thyroid disease, asthma, lowered fertility, and high blood pressure in pregnant women. Elevated risk of testicular cancer and kidney cancer have been found in highly exposed people. The International Agency for Research on Cancer classifies PFOA, a heavily used and well-studied PFAS chemical, as a possible carcinogen. One of the common uses of PFAS is to make fluoropolymers, especially PTFE, and one of the biggest markets for PTFE is coatings on cookware. The slick surfaces of non-stick pans have long enjoyed popularity even introducing Teflon into common vocabulary. But PTFE is responsible for heavy contamination of water, soil, and air. An in-depth review on the worldwide uses of PFAS published in 2020 emphasized the need for alternatives to fluoropolymers due to documented environmental contamination. To better understand how a cooking pan or baking pan coated with PTFE can harm our environment and health, We look at the phases of a pan's life cycle, manufacture, use, and disposal. Our case studies delve into the supply chains of two PTFE-coated nonstick pans. These case studies illustrate how the different stages of production lead to toxic exposures for residents and workers. PFAS chemicals may be admitted to the environment at various steps along the path, from raw materials to finished nonstick product, when precursor PFAS are being made, when the chemicals are used to make fluoropolymers like PTFE, and when fluoropolymers are applied to products like pans. These processes produce waste streams that may flow to the surrounding water, soil, and air. And this pollution often doesn't stay put, but travels and spreads, compromising clean water. In many communities, of the 24 pans we tested, two were made in the U.S., the rest in South or East Asian countries, highlighting the global nature of PFAS production and pollution. In 2006, DuPont scientists acknowledged in a publication that most PFOA and related PFAS chemicals made since the 1950s have ended up in our environment. PFOA is a process aid long used in the making of PTFE fluoropolymers. To illustrate the connection between water contamination and the manufacture of PFAS chemicals or products, we provide a few examples below. Michigan, residents around the town of Rockford, learned a few years ago that their water wells had long been poisoned by PFAS. The former Wolverine Worldwide tannery treated shoes such as Hush Puppies, with water-repelling PFAS and dumped hazardous waste products into the surrounding environment. The known contamination spreads over 25 square miles. Fayetteville, North Carolina. Chemours manufactures Gen X, a PFAS processing aid used in making PTFE at their plant here. The company discharged Gen-X into the Cape Fear River without regulation, starting in the 1980s, causing widespread drinking water contamination. The factory stacks also emitted Gen-X into the air, and the chemical later came down with rain, ending up in residents' water wells. Decatur, Alabama. In this small town, 3M made PFAS chemicals and dumped waste into the Tennessee River and local landfills starting in the 1960s. Thousands of acres are contaminated. People drinking municipal water sourced 13 miles downriver from the 3M plant have elevated PFAS levels in their blood, according to testing by the Federal Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. 3M's own documents, so the company knew the chemicals it was producing, such as PFOA and PFOS, were showing up in the blood of its employees in the 1970s and in fish many miles downstream from the plant. Minnesota. For decades, 3M disposed of PFAS waste at four sites in the Twin Cities area, contaminating drinking water and groundwater. The company made chemicals including PFOA and PFOS as well as PFAS-based products like Scotchgard. The contamination was discovered in the early 2000s, and scientists are studying its impacts. A recent study compared residents who drank water in Oakdale, Minnesota before and after the city installed filtration to remove PFAS. The researchers found that residents who drank PFAS-contaminated water experienced higher rates of infertility, premature births, and low-birth-weight babies. Use phase. Is my nonstick pan safe? PTFE is a very stable material, but does break down given enough heat. PTFE pan coatings have been known to release hazardous chemicals when heated, especially above 400 to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. These temperatures are readily achievable when the burner is set in the high range. Potential health hazards to humans from these emissions are not entirely understood. Consumers also wonder about the safety of scratched PTFE pans. Research is not definitive on whether bits of nonstick material could be harmful if accidentally ingested. Some scientists, including those from the chemical industry, have argued PTFE cannot enter cells or otherwise harm the body because it is a stable polymer of high molecular weight. Others disagree, noting PTFE formulations can contain nano-sized particles of the polymer and such nanoparticles have been shown to penetrate many different cell types. This story continues with a section discussing disposal of those pans, uh, but here's a little bit about what they found in their testing. Our testing found PTFE coatings on 11 of the 14 nonstick cooking pans. Of the remaining three pans, two were coated with silicon dioxide, quote, ceramic, and one with BPA-based epoxy, discussed further below. Our testing found PTFE along with another polymer called PES, polyether sulfone, on two of the ten baking pans. The coatings on nonstick baking pans are different than cooking pans due to the different nature of foods needing release, such as high-sugar-baked foods. Six of the ten baking pans we tested were coated with a material containing both silicone and polyester polymers and no detectable PTFE. Research is scarce on whether these coatings contain chemicals of concern that may leach into food during baking. Some research has been done on related products, flexible silicone baking sheets and silicone-coated parchment paper. Such products caused various silicone Siloxane chemicals to migrate into foods. Finally, two of the baking pans were coated with BPA based epoxy, a finding that merits more investigation. BPA based epoxy is the same material notorious for leaching the hormone disruptor bisphenol A. BPA, into some canned foods. When BPA-based epoxy is used to line the inside of a food can, BPA can migrate into the food, especially during sterilization, when the filled can is heated. How can consumers know if a pan contains PFAS? Short answer, if the pan says PTFE-free, then it likely doesn't contain PFAS. Otherwise, you can't be sure. It is difficult to identify the coating type by look or feel. Of the 24 pans we tested, two cooking pans were labeled PTFE-free, Goodfull Titanium Ceramic, and Cuisinart Green Gourmet. In addition, both pans' labels said the coating was ceramic. These claims matched our testing, as silicon dioxide can be considered a ceramic. But on many other pans, label statements may lead buyers to believe a pan is made without hazardous chemicals. Companies often tell us certain chemicals are not in a product, but when, what they don't tell us is what is in the product. We cannot easily make any informed choice in these cases. Several cooking pans listed trade names for their coatings, which are testing identified as PTFE. PFOA free doesn't mean PFAS free. In fact, most pans labeled PFOA free were coated with PTFE without clearly indicating that. So, what you can do? Make informed purchases. If you have PTFE coated nonstick pans, use them cautiously and never on high heat. When buying new cooking pans, consider cast iron, stainless steel, or another durable alternative. When buying new baking pans, consider glass, cast iron, or ceramic. Beware of marketing claims such as PFOA-free. This does not mean PFAS-free. Choose pans that tell you what they are made of. You can also take action on other PFAS uses. And our next piece is going to talk about some of those. But you can tell McDonald's to get PFAS out of its food packaging. In fact, you should tell everyone that. Check the Green Science Policy Institute's list of PFAS free products and become aware of products that may contain PFAS, such as waterproofing and stainproofing sprays for furniture, clothing, shoes, and more, stainproof or water resistant clothing, carpet, and camping gear, ski waxes, and automotive waxes. PFAS based waxes shed hazardous chemicals into the environment, and non PFAS waxes are available. So on the same topic, Sharon Lerner is one of the best authors of articles on this, I think most commonly appearing in The Intercept. That is where this next piece is from, and that is who it is by. Toxic PFAS chemicals discovered in hundreds of products. Scientists have detailed more than 200 uses of PFAS chemicals in 64 industrial areas, including mining book conservation, plastics production, photography, printing, watchmaking, car manufacturing, air conditioning, fingerprinting, and particle physics. Many of the uses, which are laid out in an article published in the journal Environmental Science, Processes and Impacts, were previously unknown. PFOA became famous for its use in Teflon after the chemical leaked from a DuPont plant that made the coating for pots and pans into drinking water in West Virginia and Ohio. Then came the realization that PFOA, along with the closely related compound PFOS, was also in firefighting foam widely used by the military. Eventually it became clear that these compounds, along with others in the same class known as PFAS, were in microwave popcorn bags, pizza boxes, waterproof fabrics, carpeting, and dental floss. Still the question of how these chemicals made their way from this handful of products into the bodies of most people on Earth remained. The new paper sheds light on that mystery by dramatically expanding the understanding of the chemical's industrial purposes and by providing the structures, uses, and unique identifying numbers for more than 1,400 individual compounds used in everyday products. This information, which is often fiercely guarded by the companies that make and use PFAS, can be difficult or impossible to obtain. Julien Gluge, a senior researcher at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, and the study's principal author, spent almost a year digging up details about the uses of PFAS in patents, scientific papers, regulatory agencies, information from manufacturers, obscure databases, and even reporting by The Intercept. The result is an incredibly detailed picture of the extent to which PFAS chemicals, which have been shown to cause a range of health problems and persist indefinitely in the environment, have become virtually omnipresent. Among Gluge's surprising discoveries was that PFAS compounds are used to coat the blades of windmills and the strings of guitars, lubricate pianos during tuning, stimulate oil wells, and coat the inside of oil pipelines. They're used in solar energy collectors and photovoltaic cells, brake fluid, pharmaceutical packaging, and windows in greenhouses in some ammunition to decrease the likelihood of unintended explosions, in filters used by wineries to strain wine before it is bottled, and in glass to make it resistant to fingerprints, according to the new paper. Ironically, given that the chemicals are toxic and have come to contaminate water around the world, PFAS chemicals also play a role in water treatment and purification. Quote, it is the best inventory to date, David Andrews, senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group, said of the paper. Andrews himself has spent time going through trademark applications and cataloging the PFS chemicals he finds. This expands on that work by a factor of 10 In addition to PFAS's industrial uses, the paper also identified dozens of common consumer and athletic products that contain the chemicals, including lubricants for bicycles, coatings for tennis rackets, ski wax, fishing lines, some wooden boats and sail covers. The compounds are also components of some rock climbing ropes, a discovery that led one outdoor equipment company to recently launch a brand of PFAS-free ropes. While it was previously known that personal care products contain PFAS, Gluge and her colleagues documented their presence in an incredibly wide range of cosmetics, including body lotion, body oil, foundation, concealer, blush, cuticle treatment, eye cream, eye pencil, eye shadow, brow products, hair creams, conditioners, anti-frizz cream, lip liner, makeup remover, anti-aging cream, mascara, moisturizer, bars of soap, shampoo, nail polish, nail straightener, nope, nail strengthener, powder, hairspray, and mousse, lip balm, lipstick, skin scrub, shaving cream, and sunscreen. The scientists also found one PFAS compound in hand sanitizer. Plastics and rubber production in the electronic industry accounted for the greatest amount of PFAS used in Sweden, Finland, Norway, and Denmark between 2000 and 2017, according to the paper. The author tried to obtain the amounts of various PFAS manufactured and imported in the U.S., but was told that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency would not make that available because companies had claimed it as confidential business information, or CBI. Kyla Bennett encountered a similar problem when she tried to get information on whether PFAS were used in pesticides. The question occurred to her because she lives in a town where the chemicals have been detected in drinking water. Quote, I just couldn't understand why so many towns, including my own in southeastern Massachusetts, had contaminated water, said Bennett, who is Science Policy Director for Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. We aren't near an airport, a military base, or a fire training facility, yet we had PFAS in our drinking water. Bennett knew that her town was aerially sprayed with pesticides, but when she asked both the EPA and pesticide manufacturers about whether Anvil 10 plus 10, the pesticide used in her town, contained PFAS, she couldn't get a straight answer and repeatedly ran into confidentiality claims so she decided to get the pesticide tested through a commercial laboratory. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection later did its own testing. The results, released yesterday, showed that the Anvil 10 Plus 10, which is aerially sprayed in 25 states, including New York, Florida, and Massachusetts, contained eight PFAS chemicals, among them PFOA and PFOS. Bennett says she suspects that Anvil 10 plus 10, the only product the group has chemically analyzed, might not be alone in containing PFAS. Quote, given the fact that it is the only one we tested and it had so many different PFAS in it, I fear it is just the tip of the iceberg, she said. The environmental science paper identified seven compounds that were used as active ingredients in pesticides, including one used widely in Brazil and five others that were added to the products as, quote, inert ingredients. Gluge described the massive document as a, quote, work in progress, and she said she welcomed the input of other scientists who can add new compounds to it, clarify the exact purpose of chemicals already on the list, and report on whether some of the uses may have already been discontinued. She also said she was hopeful that it will spark discussion about replacing these compounds with others that don't last indefinitely in the environment. Quote, The first step would be to look at the ones we think are non-essential, said Gluge. For instance, there are already PFAS-free bicycle lubricants on the market, so why do we need one with PFAS in it? The European Union is asking similar questions, noting the PFAS, quote, Contamination in some cases may be irreversible, making fundamental natural resources, such as soil and water, no longer usable. The European Commission has suggested both regulating the chemicals as a class and prohibiting all but essential uses of the chemicals. In the U.S., limiting the use of these quickly proliferating chemicals may be trickier, After the Trump administration failed to carry out promised steps to limit and regulate PFAS, President-elect Biden has promised fast action. But he also placed Michael McCabe, who oversaw DuPont's successful effort to dodge regulation of PFOA and introduce a similarly toxic replacement PFAS compound, on his EPA transition team. Biden's got his work cut out for him, Bennett said. They need to regulate PFAS as a class, they need to get the approval of these new PFAS under control, and they need to close the loophole of proprietary ingredients being withheld as CBI. Because the EPA has allowed the chemicals into so many products and allowed companies to keep their presence confidential, quote, The burden of finding chemicals and proving them guilty often falls on small NGOs like Peer or Citizens who are fighting for their lives, said Bennett. And that's not right. And it, that most certainly isn't right, <clears throat> but is the standard. These things don't come to light out of uh, government action. They come to light out of citizen action. They come to light through studies like those done by Julianne Gluge and through reporting like that done by Sharon Lerner, through... Books like Rachel Carson's, I mean, this is how action ends up eventually being taken, unfortunately, after the fact on these chemicals that do propose or pose real harms to human health and animal health and the environment as a whole. And it is a failure of our system In managing its chemical usage and in any, any potentially dangerous or toxic substance, the process should be, it is not allowed until enough scientific evidence has been built up showing that it does not pose a risk. We shouldn't be doing the other thing, which is what we do and what we have always done, is go ahead, invent a new thing. Go ahead and introduce it into the environment. And, you know, if necessary, somewhere down the line, we'll measure the effects. That should not be how we handle these new chemicals and, and new substances. It should be entirely the other way around especially where we know the uses of these substances are going to inevitably introduce these chemicals into the environment. We we don't have good measures. We don't have good science on what the results of things are until after we do them. And there is certainly, of course, there are limits to what can be studied and tested before use. But at this point, we're doing very, very little of that. We're basing our assumptions on new chemicals based on what we know about older, other chemicals. And that's just, it's poor. It's, it's poor for the outcomes of human health and environmental health. This next story goes into something else we didn't anticipate or didn't study when fracking was approved for extraction of oil and gas. This piece is written by Sam Roth and is published at ACC.org, which is the American College of Cardiology. Fracking sites may increase heart failure hospitalizations across large regions. Heart failure patients who live in communities affected by fracking are at increased risk for hospitalization according to a study published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology Today. The study looked at environmental exposure risk of thousands of heart failure patients across Pennsylvania. Heart failure is a lifelong condition that affects over 5.7 million Americans. Heart failure makes it harder for the heart to pump enough blood and oxygen to meet the body's needs. The two main heart failure phenotypes, reduced ejection fraction, HFREF, or preserved ejection fraction, HFPEF, can lead to worsening cardiac health and reduced blood flow to critical organs. In turn, heart failure patients are at higher risk for hospitalizations and death. Unconventional natural gas development, UNGD, more commonly known as fracking, is a growing industry worldwide. The four-part process includes pad preparation, clearing well pad lands for drilling, drilling, drilling vertically and horizontally into the ground up to 10,000 feet deep in both directions. Stimulation, extracting natural gas by injecting millions of water gallons into the wells along with propents and chemicals. And production, processing and transporting the gas through pipelines. In Pennsylvania, 12,000 wells have been drilled since 2004. UNGD, has several environmental and community impacts, including noise and air pollution and heavy truck traffic. Previous reports have found UNGD can cause adverse respiratory effects on local communities, but limited research has been done on cardiovascular health. The researchers aimed to evaluate the association of UNGD activity and hospitalization among heart failure patients based on electronic health record data obtained from Geisinger, an integrated health system in Pennsylvania. The researchers used residential addresses to identify 12,330 heart failure patients who resided in 37 Pennsylvania counties from 2008 to 2015. Of these patients, 5,839 were hospitalized for heart failure. The researchers studied the first hospitalization identified for each patient. We observed exposure-effect relations for three of the four unconventional natural gas development activity metrics and heart failure hospitalizations. The largest magnitude associations were observed for the well-pad preparation, stimulation, and production metrics, said Tara McAlexander, Ph.D., MPH, postdoctoral research fellow at Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health, and lead author of the study. Our findings suggest that individuals living with heart failure when exposed to greater UNGD activity are more likely to be hospitalized, particularly in those with more severe heart failure at baseline. The researchers observed stronger associations with UNGD activity in both the HFPEF and HFREF patients, suggesting both sets of heart failure phenotypes are equally su- susceptible to exposures related to ungd these associations can be attributed to the environmental impacts of fracking including air pollution water contamination and noise traffic and community impacts air pollutants can have effects can affect individuals across large regions and due to the high volume of truck traffic to the ungd sites the noise vibration and diesel exhaust can be spread over a large network of roads. Quote, in the early 2010s, the scientific community was calling for good epidemiological studies in order to evaluate the health effects of fracking. In this observational study, the researchers applied extensive and rigorous methods to determine specific exposure outcomes, associations between fracking and heart failure, hospitalizations, said Barak Alamad. M.B.C.H.B., MPH, a Ph.D. candidate in environmental health at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, in accompanying editorial comment. Moving forward, we need to better understand the mediating effects by air and water pollution and the existence of racial disparities in the fracking impacts. The study had some limitations, including using a less specific method to identify heart failure cases as well as a lack of information on diet, dietary intake and physical activity. Finally, the study did not include information on patient occupation. And from there, we tackle uh, a bit of information about air pollution. This is published at CIEH.org which is Chartered Institute of Environmental Health. And this piece, let's see if this piece has an identified author. Yep, this piece is written by Katie Coyne, C-O-Y-N-E. Southwark Coroner's Court yesterday, December 16, found that air pollution made, quote, a material contribution to the death of Ella Adukisi Debra Ella is the first person in the UK and probably the world to have air pollution listed as a cause of death Ella who lived near the busy South Circular Road in Lewisham in southeast London died in 2013 In the years leading up to Ella's death nitrogen dioxide emissions in Lewisham exceeded EU and UK legal limits and particulate matter levels, were above the World Health Organization guidelines. During the inquest, harrowing testimony was heard detailing how Ella would drown in lung secretions every one to five weeks, leading to her being admitted to the hospital 27 times up to her death. The coroner recorded the cause of death as acute respiratory failure, severe asthma, and air pollution exposure. He added the lack of information given to Ella's mother may also have contributed. Human rights lawyer Jocelyn Coburn, who represents Ella's mother, Rosamond, and who is also an asthma sufferer, said, quote, We've had two weeks looking at what happened to poor Ella, who was a little girl who started becoming ill aged six and who died at nine. And what the, quarter, what the coroner has set out is the impact that air pollution had on her lungs, the toxic effect, and how it ended up leading to both the development of her asthma and the exacerbation which led to her death. So it really brings air pollution death to a human level, an individual micro level, which I think will make it harder to be ignored. Coburn said the verdict raises questions of whether other deaths in the UK are caused by air pollution It should be considered during inquests. Studies have found up to 40,000 deaths are caused by air pollution each year in the UK, but during her work on the case, Coburn found a reluctance to acknowledge the link between air pollution and individual deaths. She said, quote, there is a disconnect between acknowledging that and even acknowledging it is a public health emergency and recognizing that that is a real impact on real human beings. Even among medical and pollution experts, she said, there was almost a prevailing view that you could only ever look at it in the population and that it wouldn't be possible to drill down to an individual level, which I felt was wrong. It was thanks to a report in 2018 from Stephen Holgate, a professor of immunopharmacology, who also gave evidence at the inquest, that this missing link was established. This led to a campaign to quash the original verdict and open a new inquest into Ella's death. Coburn said she was also surprised that there had not been more of a public health approach to air pollution in the UK and that it has remained in the realm of the responsibilities of the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs in terms of air emission standards with only lip service being paid to human health. She argued there was a need for more joined-up approach at government level to really learn the right lessons about policy focused on health and how air pollution affects individuals. Coburn also explained why she took on the case. Quote, I felt personally, as a human rights lawyer, that there is a case to be made to say there is a human right to breathe clean air and that there is a right to life under Article 2. And the government needs to take reasonable steps to address the risk to life which we thought that air pollution posed. As well as having asthma, Coburn has a spinal disability that restricts her lung capacity. This was a personal thing to me as well. Ella's case was so disturbing to work on, but I could see, although Ella had rare asthma, there must be evidence which can be found to show the damage that this causes to people. And it must also be the case that people are dying from it, and those deaths, the cause of those deaths, should be properly recognized. Following the verdict, the coroner has also requested submissions for a prevention of future deaths report that could make recommendations on tackling air pollution, and further news on this is expected in January. Coburn added, You'll understand it's been an incredible exhausting experience for the family, who will be taking a well-deserved break over Christmas to process what this ruling means. I think there will be more to come, not least the prevention of future deaths hearing next month. Rosamund is an amazing person, and she's determined not only to get justice for Ella, but she wants lessons to be learned from this. She wants positive change to happen as a result of this. So I have no doubt that she will continue to fight on. It's kind of remarkable that we can have statistical analyses that show that 40,000 lives are lost a year in, in the UK due to air pollution or hundreds of thousands of lives around the globe uh, every year due to air pollution, but can't can't point to a single individual before now for whom air pollution is a cause of death. Uh, It's just amazing that in the hundreds of thousands of people around the globe that the studies show are impacted in that way, um, it is extraordinarily difficult to determine that that is a contributing factor to someone's death. So hopefully this is the start of a turning point in acknowledging the individual toll that air pollution impacts on us so that we can be more diligent about controlling and limiting and reducing air pollution. So shifting gears a bit, but staying in the, the line of, uh, medicine, health and healthcare, um, here's a piece published by the People's Policy Product, Project peoplespolicyproject.org, written by Matt Bruning. The U.S. is one of the only major industrialized countries that does not guarantee health care to all its citizens in some manner. And one of the major factors in preventing that from moving forward is the opposition to it. And that opposition is largely supported and backed by the industry that makes tremendous profit in the United States off of healthcare. Um but one of their biggest arguments is that the government can't afford it. It just costs too darn much. And and the real answer is to the real answer to the question how are we going to pay for it is we already do, is that Medicare for all does not change the amount of care. It only changes who pays for it. So if we can afford our existing system, and some people would argue we can't, if we can afford our existing system, then we can afford Medicare for all because it's only just the money's coming from a different place. So on those grounds, that argument is not effective. I mean, it's effective because many, many people still believe it, but it's, it holds no no water but those aren't the only grounds that we can attack the how are you going to pay for it argument because medicare for all is cheaper than our existing system this is why we can without increasing costs tremendously maybe even without increasing costs at all cover everyone in the u.s whereas our current commercial health care system does not cover everyone in the U S there are many, many people, millions of people in the U S that have zero coverage that if they have a healthcare issue and they need to seek, um, support for that through a doctor, through a hospital, um, then they pay out of their own pocket or they don't pay at all. In which case they will have a hard time finding that care and getting someone to, to perform that care. There certainly are uh, responsibilities that hospitals and emergency rooms have to not turn away a patient, um, but that there, there's limitations to that as well. In any event, this particular story is taking a look at the Congressional Budget Office. This is the government entity that assesses policies to look at their impact on the budget, congressional budget office. Uh, So they took a look at Medicare for all and what did they find? No surprise to those of us who are closer and who've done a lot of, or even a minimal amount or moderate amount of inquiry or study into Medicare for all is Medicare for all reduces Health spending. Yesterday, the Congressional Budget Office (CBO) released an estimate of the cost of implementing a single-payer health insurance program in the United States. The CBO's report is more exhaustive than any other recent study on the subject, and concludes that replacing our current system with a single-payer system would ensure every American, while reducing overall health spending in the country. Modeling the cost of a single payer program is relatively straightforward. You begin with the status quo healthcare system and then make educated guesses about the following questions How many more units of healthcare services will be demanded and supplied when price barriers are removed? How much more efficient will health insurance administration be after the enrollment and payment systems are radically simplified? And how much money will be saved by reducing the payment rates for healthcare providers and drug companies? The CBO answered these questions for four different single payer designs and found that a single payer system would save $42 billion to $743 billion in 2030 alone. Separately, the CBO took its most costly single-payer option, a program with high payment rates to providers and drug companies and low-cost sharing for individuals, and added long-term support and services, LTSS, to it to produce a fifth cost estimate. In that estimate, total spending rises by $290 billion dollars. The CBO option that most closely approximates current Medicare for All proposals is option three, which features low payment rates and low cost sharing. That option produces $650 billion of savings in 2030. Adding LTSS to that option, which also approximates what many current Medicare for All proposals do, looks like it would bring the savings down to around $300 billion. More interesting than the CBO's headline finding is the extremely detailed inquiry they do in each specific variable and the comparison of the results of their inquiry to the results of other similar studies. The thing that stands out the most to me in this comparison is CBO's deep dive into administrative costs. Medicare for All advocates have historically pointed towards the 2% administrative costs of traditional Medicare as what we should expect in a Medicare for All system. Critics of this view have typically argued, among other things, that Medicare's low administrative costs are a mirage driven by the fact that their per-enrollee administrative costs are being divided by disproportionately large per-enrollee health care utilization. This rebuttal never really made any sense. Private Medicare Advantage plans have a similarly sick and elderly enrollment population, but managed to spend a whopping 13.7% of their revenue on administrative expenses. The CBO's analysis, which starts with the current Medicare administrative costs and then determines how each element of those costs would go up or down in a single-payer system, seems to put this claim to bed once and for all. Indeed, the CBO finds that the current Medicare administrative costs that are often touted by advocates are actually higher than the administrative costs you would expect in a single-payer system because a large share of those costs are tied up in tasks like eligibility determination and collection of Medicare Part B premiums that would no longer exist in a Medicare for All system. Thus, the payer administrative costs we could expect under single-payer are not the 6% touted by Urban and Mercatus. They are not even the 2% of the traditional Medicare program. Rather, they are more like 1.5 to 1.8%. These other estimates are therefore missing hundreds of billions of dollars of savings per year on this item alone. Overall, the study confirms what serious Medicare for All analysts have known for some time now it is possible to provide high-quality public health insurance to every person in the country while also saving money overall on health spending. The barriers to the policy are not technical deficiencies or costs, but rather political opposition from Republicans and conservative Democrats who would rather spend more money to provide less health care. So, very comprehensive and encouraging study out of Congressional Budget Office on assessing Medicare for all health spending. So what does this mean for our Congress people? What does Medicare all mean for our Congress people? Well, there's in in the, the last election, in the election in November 2020, in which uh, both sides were highly motivated to get out to the polls, the motivation on the Democratic side did not carry down ticket. A number of people who won in the, the quote-unquote blue wave of 2018 did not hold on to their seats. And the Democratic... Uh, lead in the number of seats in the House of Representatives shrank, shrank quite a bit. They still have a a comfortable lead, but not nearly as comfortable as they had prior. Now in the Senate, it was another story. The Senate at best got slightly narrower. Maybe that's not at best. At worst, got slightly narrower to the Democrats' benefit by a seat or so. But there's still two, as, as I as I record this, there's stu- still two seats in Georgia that have not yet been decided. Um, and they will either hold the existing lead for the Republicans if Republicans win those seats or actually tip the scales in the Senate to make it a 50-50 split, which would give the Democrats the edge and control of the Senate. But there was much hand-wringing, especially about the losses in the House, and much blame pointed towards the left, which is inevitable. The left, the real left, um, is is battling against the the insiders, battling against the establishment Of the Democratic Party, which is extraordinarily centrist, if not to the right in the U.S., our whole view of the political spectrum and the left right uh, segments of that spectrum is very disoriented when you look at it in comparison to like the rest of the world, like the rest of the world. There are real parties that represent the left that fight for policies that represent the left what we have in the united states is a far-right party called the republicans and a center-right party called the democrats but in the united states we imagine because these are our two prevailing political forces that one of these represents either side of the equation when that's absolutely not the case so After the losses of the Democrats, uh, a lot of Democrats pointed their fingers to the left and said, all those policies that you fought for cost us, cost us our wins. And one of those policies was Medicare for all. One of those policies was Green New Deal. Um, Here's a piece written by Richard Lackman and Michael Schwartz and Kevin Young, published at CommonDreams.org, dispelling one of those myths. No co-sponsor of Medicare for All has lost re-election in the past decade, even in GOP-leaning districts. It's common sense. Democratic politicians who support quote-unquote radical notions like Medicare for All, Free College, or preserving a habitable planet via a Green New Deal, guarantee their own defeat. A recent New York Times interview with Pennsylvania congressman and corporate Democrat Connor Lamb states simply that Medicare for All is, quote, unpopular in swing districts, an idea presumably so obvious that it requires no documentation. Lamb asserts that opposition to Medicare for All and other progressive policies quote, separates a winner from a loser in a swing district like mine. The Democratic Party's army of political strategists has used this logic for decades to explain both victories and defeats. Wunderkind party consultant David Shore, for example, assures us that quote, boring, moderate Democrats systemically outperform the quote, ideological extremists. Whole separate tangent. The policies that the left political minded folks running for office stand for, those policies of the real left progressives are not extremist policies. They're policies that are supported by the, by, by significant majorities of the American public. This mantra has been internalized by much of the Democratic electorate. Millions of voters in the 2016 and 2020 primaries voted for the, quote, moderate choices, largely because they thought Bernie Sanders and other progressives were not electable. I might like Medicare for all, the thinking goes, but most of the country is inalterably opposed, so someone like Sanders just can't win. It may be common sense But it's wrong. Every single congressional co-sponsor of the Medicare for All bills in the House and Senate who were up for re-election beat their Republican opponents in 2020. And in 2018. And in 2016. And every Democrat who lost re-election to a Republican had campaigned on the, quote, boring moderate platform that Shore contends is the formula for success. In fact, you have to go back a full decade to find a single Democratic incumbent who co-sponsored a Medicare for All bill and lost their re-election bill. One lost in 2010, when 52 total House Democrats lost re-election in the Republican blowout. For the entire period from 2002 to 2020, there were two During that time, Medicare for All has had between 38 and 124 co-sponsors in the House. In 2003, Representative John Conyers first introduced his expanded and improved Medicare for All bill, H.R. 676. He reintroduced the bill in each session until 2019, when Representative Pramila Jayapal introduced a successor H.R. 1384, the Medicare for All Act of 2019. In the meantime, Bernie Sanders first introduced a Senate version in 2017. Starting with the election of 2004, therefore, many voters could express their opinion about this prototypical progressive measure by voting for or against the co-sponsor of a Medicare for All bill. And if Conor Lamb, David Shore, and the other Democratic establishment gurus are correct, the ideological extremists who sponsored those bills should have performed poorly in swing districts, which are only willing to send, quote, boring, moderate Democrats to Congress. The Medicare for All advocates could be elected and re-elected only in overwhelmingly Democratic districts with a strongly progressive population, exemplified by Jayapal's 7th Washington district in Seattle. Taking Lamb's challenge, we identified the 147 congressional swing districts which flipped from Republican to Democrat in a House election in 2002 or later. We then looked at which of these Democrats won re-election the next time around, comparing the 12 Democrats from those districts who became co-sponsors of Medicare for All with the 135, quote, moderates who did not support the bill. All 12 Medicare for All sponsors won re-election despite the fact that their seats had been held by Republicans just two years before. On the other hand, 30 percent, 40 out of 135 of the moderates, lost re-election in the next cycle. This pattern was particularly striking in 2020, when Democrats were surprised by their loss of 10 seats in the House, despite Joe Biden's victory at the presidential level. Of the 12 Medicare for All sponsors previously elected in swing districts, nine were running for re-election in 2020. All nine won. Four of these districts had even leaned Republican in the prior two presidential elections. By contrast, 30%, 11 of 37 of the moderate Democrats from swing districts lost their re-election bids. These results refute Connor Lamb's maxim that progressives can't win election or re-election quote, in a swing district like mine, as well as David Shore's proclamation that boring moderate Democrats systemically outperform the ideological extremists. The simple truth is that progressives have a better record of winning re-election, even in the swing districts. Is Medicare for All just an exception? That is, do other progressive policies still alienate the moderate voter, as Lamb and Shore argue? To test this possibility, we looked at what is likely the most polarizing of the prominent issues in the 2020 election. The willingness of candidates to support systemic reform to curb racist violence by the police. We considered the electoral fate of the eight swing districts Democrats who co-sponsored H.R. 7120 the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020. We found that all had one re-election, despite the unanimous common sense among establishment Democrats that supporting the demands of the movement for black lives was electoral poison. These results support the argument that the left has long been making, that there is a real appetite for progressive anti-corporate policies among the U.S. public, even in swing states like Lambs, Pennsylvania, and even among the white voters who are so often dismissed and misunderstood by Democratic leaders and hotshot consultants. If those policies are framed clearly and honestly in terms that are intelligible to the average person, for example, Medicare for All, they often garner wide support, even in swing districts. And they gain more support than the idea of returning to the pre-Trump status quo and the hollow promises of establishment Democrats. It's difficult to believe that Democratic Party gurus really misunderstand this reality. All the data we've presented above is easily available online. We collected and analyzed it in about 48 hours. They study this stuff full-time, If they don't see it by now, it's because they and their bosses and their real bosses, the corporate overlords, are committed to not seeing it. As Upton Sinclair said, quote, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. And that brings us to one of the big debates out there right now on the left among the uh, electorally and uh, government-focused left. What might be a useful way, a positive way, that those elected representatives, some brand-newly elected representatives that are further to the left of the political spectrum what could be a way for them to exercise some power and promote medicare for all so there's a movement out there and it's it's adopted the um slogan force the vote you can go to forcethevote.org which is where this information comes from now there have been many elements of this movement that i think are not positive but it's an it's the nature of social media, in our country and in the world, but in the United States in particular, social media, particularly Facebook, Twitter, um, they they're in many ways destructive to real debate about policies and about tactics because they don't emphasize. Cogent arguments, they don't promote, um, genuine, honest, back and forth related to the issue. What they promote is name calling. Name calling means views fighting on social media gets an audience. And that's the only reason social media exists. It exists to get an audience, attract an audience, keep your eyes on the screen for as long as possible so they can deliver you as an advertising audience to advertisers where they make their money. So they have algorithms. Those algorithms inevitably promote and foster those personal disagreements. It is the worst thing about social media. It's the worst thing about interpersonal interactions anywhere, including on social media. Social media just has built in methods to expand and, uh, feature and blow up those negative interactions. So person A calls person B a name because they don't like what person B suggests as a tactic It all becomes because of the pylon about that disturbing, that regrettable negative interaction about personality. Pro tip to try to get a better discourse on social media, don't ever attack An individual personally don't say something about someone explain why you might agree or might disagree with a policy or with a proposal or with a tactic that someone might be proposing and when you may get attacked because of the nature of social media do your best to not fight back in a personal way. That's all I have to say about that. I'm, I'm so intensely uninterested in that kind of discourse on the left or anywhere. Um, I think it's such an enormous distraction. It is the, the, the biggest harm that social media does to us. And social media does a lot of incredibly positive things for us. It connects people that would never, ever be connected without it. It gives hope to people. That have extraordinarily difficult time finding hope within their life, within their small sphere of where they live. And those relations of individuals that are in their, in their life, in real life, it can be enormously and is enormously beneficial. We just have to use, I think, real genuine caution in how we interact with other individuals through it. But we do, and we should We should interact with other individuals through it. So, here is a proposal that has been made about how those elected officials on the left side of the spectrum can exercise some power and promote Medicare for All. This is, once again, from the site ForcetheVote.org. Representative Nancy Pelosi is running for her fourth term as Speaker of the House. The election is in the first week of January, and this time, because Democrats lost seats in the House and were left with a slim majority, she needs votes from congressional progressives to get reelected. Pelosi is refusing to bring Medicare for All to the floor of the House for a vote in the middle of a pandemic that has killed 300,000 Americans. Voters sent progressives to Congress to fight for Medicare for All, and this is their fleeting moment of leverage. Establishment Democrats make demands of Pelosi for their votes, and so should progressives. Wall Street makes demands of Pelosi for their support, and so should progressives. This is the worst health crisis in a century, and millions have lost their employer-based coverage, 72% 72% of Americans want Medicare for All and every other major country on Earth guarantees health care to all people as a right. Democrats ran under the banner of healthcare is a human right, but it's easy to campaign on or sponsor legislation that will never come up for a vote. A vote on Medicare for All will prompt a national conversation on guaranteeing health care in the middle of a pandemic. It will show the country who really supports it not just rhetorically, but in practice. Then we can hold our representatives accountable. Political comedian Jimmy Dore launched the initiative and NFL Chargers running back Justin Jackson kicked off a public discussion with AOC about it on Twitter. Many other movement figures have expressed support for the idea, including Aaron Maté, Brianna Joy Gray, Caitlin Johnstone, Dr. Cornell West, Graham Elwood, Katie Halper, Crystal Ball, Kyle Kalinske, Marianne Williamson, Max Blumenthal, Nick Brana, Nico House, Ron Placone, Ryan Knight, Steph Zamorano, and Susan Sarandon. We put the squad and House progressives in office to stand up to Nancy Pelosi, establishment Democrats, and the insurance corporations that fund them. This is a rare moment where Pelosi needs something from progressives. It could be years before we have another chance, and millions of people do not have that long. This country needs Medicare for all now. A floor vote is the absolute least we must demand. We want to vote on the last full week of January, after Biden is inaugurated. The progressive movement has shown huge support for this campaign, and we want to know, will you stand up to Democratic Party leadership when we need it the most? And it lists the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus and Democrats who ran on Medicare for All, or it lists many of those people here as well. It has a petition you can sign, has text of a message you can send <clears throat> to your representative um, to, to support this. So it is, I think, a, a very useful tactic. Get a vote on Medicare for all. Let everyone be on the record to state where where they are and what they believe in. And to do so now, when Nancy Pelosi needs you for something, she needs your vote. Extract a concession from her now. This is one of the big failures of the... Democratic election or the Democratic Party memberships election of Joe Biden. The left did not make any hard demands of Joe Biden to deliver the votes. They said, we're going to vote for you no matter what. And then we'll push you to the left. That was the mantra. That was the mantra. Vote for Joe, then push him to the left we can push them to the left and it it's a fool it's foolish it gives away your power when you have power and then you try to build up power when you have less when you have less leverage so i think this is a good tactic i think this is useful i think the medicare for all will fail absolutely not that it not that it must fail in the house where the democrats still have a majority it certainly could pass it would not Pass the Senate at this point in time, it would not pass the Senate even with a Democratic majority. There are too many very conservative, quote unquote, Democrat um, senators that would not support it. But it doesn't have to win to be successful. Most legislation fails in its earlier forms, and then changes later, and ultimately succeeds the civil rights act in its initial form in its initial introduction failed but then a year later passed so it's a good and important step on our long fight to get medicare for all in the united states and that'll wrap up this episode of you can't be neutral you can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. And don't forget, you can go to YouCan'tBeNeutral.com to find all of the back episodes and those links to make a donation or send me a message. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening.
1: Of course, when you, when you approach history that way with a point of view, it's, it's, it can be dangerous to your career. And people always wonder why it is that the textbooks repeat the same stories over and over again, or why history is taught the same way, or why the same set of facts are told over again, or why the same things are omitted over and over again. And the very repetition of those omissions the very repetition of those points of view become persuasive in telling you, well, this must be the truth. If seven, eight, ten generations of kids learn that Columbus was nothing but a marvelous adventurer and great navigator, a real professional, you know. And if everyone, if everybody has been taught the same thing for a hundred years, it must be true. Um, And if you teach it in a different way, if you teach something that's been taught the same way or if you write something uh, that's been taught a certain way and you deviate from that and you start to teach or to write something in a new way, well, that may be dangerous for your career. You may not even consciously think of it that way. You're not consciously selling out. It's just that in a society of, of economic hierarchy, in a society of economic insecurity, in a society where everybody is in some way insecure, uh, middle class, working class, everybody's in a situation where somebody has power over them, power over their jobs, Power over their tenure, power over their promotion, power over their salaries. In every such situation, there's always the uh, thought or even the uh, unthought but felt need for safety. And safety results in teaching a certain kind of way, writing a certain kind of way, presenting uh, the same Set of ideas over and over again. Uh, that's safe. But I, I guess you can put it this way I never wanted to practice safe history. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I remember.